romantic relationships can be tough at the best of times. But throw in a global pandemic and a few months of quarantine, and many couples are struggling to keep it together, let alone enjoy their relationships. Joining me today is couples therapist Chloe Choi. She's here to give you the tools to help your relationship survive and maybe even thrive in this new world. I'm Bryn Savage, and this is The Plumb Line, a podcast on mental wellness. Chloe, welcome. Let's start with stress. Can you tell me about how stress actually impacts relationships? Yeah, so this is such an important question for us right now as we're all experiencing a collective stress um, due to the fact that we're currently living through this global pandemic, right? So very uncharted territory for all of us. Um, Whenever I think about stress, my go-to framework is the idea of our window of tolerance. So the window of tolerance is a term that uh, Dr. Dan Siegel coined. Um, And what I'll do is I'll explain a little bit more about what this means. So basically, we all have a window in which we're able to tolerate what life throws at us. So when we're operating within this window of tolerance, we're in what they call our optimal arousal zone, which essentially just means that we're able to experience empathy. We can regulate our own emotions or experiences. We can feel safe. Uh, Basically, we can handle life and be in relationship and feel comfortable. Uh, But when we experience stress, uh, what happens is this window becomes smaller. Um, So our window of being able to be okay actually decreases, right? So when our window is small, we will pop outside of that window. And when we do, we go into one of two arousal zones. Um, So we have what we call the hyper arousal zone, um, which is when our sympathetic nervous system gets activated. So that's like our fight or flight response. And then we have a hypo arousal zone. Um, And so that's the parasympathetic nervous system. um, And that's more of the freeze response that sometimes gets forgotten. Um, So when we're in the hyper arousal zone, what that could look like to make that a bit more tangible, because that's quite jargony, um, you know, that looks like defensiveness or emotional reactivity. Um, It could be racing thoughts hypervigilance. That's where we're going to see anger and rage. Um, And then the hypoarousal zone, that looks a little bit different. Um, That's where we kind of have really, really low energy, uh, where we might be feeling numb um, or numbed out. Um, where we feel like we maybe don't have the ability to defend ourselves, or we're feeling really shut down. Um, so when you ask Bryn like, what it what it looks like to have stress impact our relationship, um, I guess we have to consider what it's like to operate with our partners from either of these zones, right? So trusting that, you know, knowing that when we're in a situation of high stress, we're much more likely to pop out of our window of tolerance and into either a hyper or hypo aroused state. Um, So naturally what we see in relationships where stress is causing that window of tolerance to be smaller is we're seeing increased conflict levels, um, which makes sense, right? Because it's really hard to connect. It's hard to empathize. It's hard to be vulnerable uh, when you're operating out of a place of hypo or hyper arousal. Um, So what can be really helpful in this is just discussing this concept with our partners, right? Like talking about your window of tolerance um, and even identifying like which zone is your go-to zone. Um, So, you know, whether yours is hyper or hypo so that our partner actually has an idea of what's maybe happening for us in those moments when we are popping outside of that window. Hmm. And how can we increase the window of tolerance? 
Yeah, that's also a really good question. I guess one simple thing we can do um, would just be simply, you know, checking in with ourselves each morning as we start our day. So, you know, just noticing, is there anything that is going on in addition to a global pandemic, in addition to, you know, work stresses that are maybe always there? Uh, But are there any other extenuating factors that could be making your window smaller. So, you know, an example of that for me, um, as you know, Brynn, as my friend, uh, sleep is super, super important to me. Uh, And as a mom, obviously, that's not always easy to come by, right? Um, So for me, if I haven't slept well, I find that my window becomes like a crack. (laughs) Um, So then it's about identifying what you can do to care for that, right? So, um, you know, sharing it with your partner, giving them a heads up that, you know, something's going on for us that's making our window feel kind of small so that they can be mindful of it and maybe even choose to show up in a way that could support us. So for me, what that might look like would be, you know, telling Peter, hey, I had a really rough night last night. You know, the baby woke up a bunch of times or whatever. Um, And, you know, a way that he could support me would be be offering to watch the kids so I could take a nap. Uh, So little things like that. Uh, And then I think also, you know, just identifying the stressors that are present that we can control. Um, So being really intentional, right, about eating a fulfilling meal or doing a really simple mindful breathing exercise, uh, being intentional about going to bed early if sleep is important to you uh, and moving our body. Right. So it can be. I think it could be easy to point out the things that we've lost access to, right? That could help us with our window of tolerance, Um, you know, because obviously we've lost a lot. We've lost access to a lot of things uh, in in our current context, Uh, but there are still little things that we can do. Um, And so, so really being able to focus on, on trying to do those things, Uh, even just like, you know, cultivating fun or appreciation and laughing can also help to reduce our stress and can increase our window of tolerance. Um, And I know that that can be difficult when it feels like the state of the world is, you know, not the happiest place right now. Uh, But but if we can be creative, right, and finding ways to cultivate that fun, um, and I think humor can be such a powerful resource for us. And uh, an example of this that kind of comes to mind is I heard about um, one couple who's working from home together, and they actually created this fake coworker to blame their annoying habits on, and they named her Cheryl. Um, but I think, you know, as silly as that is, little things like that can really go a long way in, you know, increasing our window of tolerance and decreasing the impact that our stress is having on us. So being able to find ways to laugh and to choke uh, and to, to find joy in the midst of stressful times. Another thing that I really love to do is have people write up their own kind of personal hierarchy of needs and then put that up on the fridge so that both partners are able to see it. Yeah, I love that idea. And having that image in such a frequently trafficked area like the fridge, because let's be real, we're all having a lot of snacks right now, (laughs) is really going to encourage us to be mindful of checking in on our needs, right? Because it's not necessarily something that we... Um, you know, unless we've trained ourselves, you know, to know to check in on, right? And on the flip side, what can we do when our partner's window of tolerance is small? Yeah. So, I mean, trying our best to access compassion is really going to help us in that situation. Uh, Really reminding ourselves of our emotional boundaries, right? So I'm not responsible for my partner's emotions and it's not my job to fix it 
or to personalize it, uh, which can be extra hard. That's hard just in general, right, to practice, but even harder in isolation, right, because we are so impacted by the emotions of other people. And the reality is, is that we're likely in close proximity to our partners. Uh, So now more than ever, it's so important to be really doing our own work when we're able um, so being able to, you know, tend to our own reactions to them, um, you know, that could be really helpful. So just noticing how their current state is impacting us and then caring for ourselves and caring for that response. And then also holding that at the same time, while we're not responsible for our partner's feelings, um, you know, it's really important to acknowledge that in a relationship, we can choose to show up and support our partner in their emotional experience. So, you know, something like offering an attuned check-in might be really helpful uh, if your partner is having a rough day. So what that could look like is maybe, you know, saying something like, I noticed that you're seeming a bit off today. What could I do to best support you right now? Uh, Is there anything I could do to make this feel better for you? Um, So just really being intentional about asking ourselves, you know, what might my partner's needs be right now? Or if you can't identify them on your own, checking in with them and asking them, um, you know, and of course, in a non-combative way. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to remember that conflict just happens because people's needs are different. One person's need uh, might be for space and the other person's need for connection just happens at the same time. And I think anytime there is a conflict, the bottom line question should always be, what does the other person need right now? And what do I need right now? I just, I think that helps to make the bad mood seem a little bit less personal. Yes. And this can really help in diffusing conflict as well, right? So, I mean, I can think of a time uh, during this pandemic where actually putting that into practice was really helpful for me. Um I remember it was at the very beginning of this whole COVID-19 situation. And so there was a lot of like ambiguity regarding the rules of what we were allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do, um, specifically around like being with people outside of your household and how to interact with them. And I remember I really, really wanted to go for a run with my friend. Uh, and Peter had a reaction to that. Um, and I noticed immediately myself going into a place of defensiveness. And I could very quickly see it, you know, spiraling into a conflict. Um, thankfully, by some miracle, <laughs> I don't know how, I was able to identify, you know, in that conversation um, that running with my friend specifically um, was a need for me versus just kind of like a frivolous behavior that I wanted to do. Um, you know, so really being able to communicate, you know, I'm struggling with feeling emotionally isolated and I'm so highly extroverted. So that's super important for me. And that running with this person, it's not just about going for a run with someone, but it's about feeling my need for connection. Um, so I think when Peter was able to hear that my behavior was a need feeling behavior versus just, you know, a want behavior, um, he, he was really able to soften. And then I felt like he, you know, he was really able to identify his own need, right, which was rooted in a need to feel safe, right, a need to know that we're doing the right things, that we're following the rules. Um, so from there, we were really able to brainstorm ways that we could both have our needs met. So I think, you know, it looked like me offering reassurance that, you know, I'd be wearing a mask, I'd be maintaining social distancing, you know, have a shower as soon as I get home, those types of things. Um, and then also him validating me, right? Like saying, yeah, it makes sense that you want to go do this thing. Um, and it's not like you want to go do this thing because you're 
you know, just trying to hurt me or being insensitive. It's because you're trying to meet your own need for social contact and connection. And that that's also super important. Um, so really being able to, yeah, um, identify what our needs were in the midst of what was going on really helped us to diffuse that. It almost seems like a universal right now is relationship conflict, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. When you add up stress and you know, small windows of tolerance and then the nonstop time together, I think uh, you've got a perfect storm for conflict. I, I remember one time, you know, it was maybe a few weeks ago now, or who knows, maybe it was like, there's no concept of time anymore. <laughs> um, but I remember whining to Peter, like, why are we bickering so much? And him just replying, because everyone is bickering so much. Um, and just hearing him say that, you know, actually made me feel better just knowing that it wasn't necessarily like a me problem or an us problem, but it was a pandemic problem. <laughs> um, but with that said, obviously it's one that we can work to lessen. Um, and I think, you know, whenever we talk about or look at conflict, I think it can be so helpful for us to look at attachment. Um, so, so we relate to our partners often as we related to our early caregivers, uh, and we refer to this as our attachment style. Um, and without going into too much detail about that, essentially, most people generally fall into one or of two, um, tendencies, behavior tendencies when their attachment feels threatened. So the first one being, you know, a pursuing tendency uh, and the second being a withdrawing tendency. And, and both of these behaviors are about safety, right? A pursuer is trying to regain safety by pursuing their partner's attention and engagement, but often this is done in ways that aren't actually helpful. So like, you know, continuing to press into an argument or becoming critical or blaming. Um, and then a withdrawer attempts to regain safety by retreating and being alone, right? Like I can only self-soothe. I can only feel better if I'm by myself. I can just rely on me to do this. Um, and so, you know, if paired with a pursuer, then often a withdrawer feels really overwhelmed by the push to connect and they retreat more. And then the pursuer feels more threatened and they pursue more. And then there's this, this vicious cycle. Uh, and I think just being aware of what our stance is, once again, just like with the window of tolerance, like where do you go in the window of tolerance? And maybe there's some overlap here. I'm not sure. I've never, I've never seen any research on that, but I'm sure there could be some relationship there. Um, but just identifying, you know, which stance you take uh, and figuring out what stance your partner takes and then really addressing that uh, can be helpful in terms of breaking that cycle. So what might that actually look like, you know, in real life? Yeah. So I guess if I'm to look, you know, at my own relationship, um, I'm typically the pursuer and Peter is the withdrawer. And so I guess an example would be like, Let's say one day I feel like Peter hasn't been super present with me um, because something from work is stressing him out. His mind is preoccupied. So because in that context, I would maybe feel threatened by his lack of presence. I would maybe take a blaming stance and I would try pursuing him. Um, and what that might look like is, you know, saying something like, you haven't paid any attention to me or the kids all day. And like, even when you are with us, it feels like you're somewhere else. And, you know, I'm exhausted. I've been watching the kids all day. You know, I need that connection. Um, which saying something like that would very likely cause Peter uh, to feel emotionally threatened, right? And then as a result, he might withdraw and become more distant. And then I might continue playing the blame game, right? Trying to get him to, to connect and just kind of keep, you know, 
harping into him. Why aren't you present? Why aren't you paying attention um, as he continues to retreat? So, you know, that's kind of a, I guess, a nitty gritty example of what that could look yeah, like. Yeah. And I think so often those threat responses are evoked when there's really core needs that are being missed, you know, yeah. needs for connection or needs for alone time. Exactly. Yeah. And if we can get to the bottom of which feeling for us is being threatened and then we can communicate that to our partner instead of going into, you know, either a pursuing or a drawing place, then we're way less likely to enter into a conflict. Right. Uh, so one, one really helpful template for doing this um, is something that I once heard from Brene Brown and I actually use this all the time and Peter started using it all the time too. And it's really, really helped us. Um, and so instead of telling our partner what they are or what they're not doing, um, we use the language, the story I'm telling myself is. Um, so if we were to use the example that I gave with Peter, um, so instead of going into the blame mode, I could have said, you know, something like, I've noticed today, you know, I've been feeling like you haven't been present with us. And the story I'm telling myself is that it's because you don't want to spend time with me. Um, and, you know, if I had said something like that, you know, I'm sure Peter would respond maybe by saying, you know, I'm really sorry you're feeling that way. I actually really love spending time with you, but I'm feeling really stressed about something that's happening at work. And I'm just finding that I'm struggling to be present because this is just really on my mind. Um, and then, you know, together from there, we could go to a solution, right? Um, so something like being able to use that template is just such a diffuser and it's so much more vulnerable too, right? Like you're not accusing the person, um, but you're actually sharing what your fear is um, or what, what your need is in that. And that really allows you to be on the same team against a situation, huh? Instead of being, you know, against each other as people. Exactly. Yeah. Externalizing, uh, externalizing the issue. Um, I know Esther Perel talks about this idea of, you know, externalizing a lot, like the us together uh, versus the problem instead of us just against each other. Um, yeah. Peter and I, when we talk about this, we often use the imagery of being in the trenches together, right? So I will say, you know, let's not turn on each other. You know, we're in the trenches together and we're fighting against this common enemy. Um, so that can really be helpful in terms of just like reconnecting when it feels like you're kind of turning on each other because it's true. Yeah, we really need to be focusing on, you know, caring for the relationship, caring for one another um, and fighting, you know, this external force that's trying to separate you versus really, you know, turning on one another. Yeah, John Gottman, I think, talks about the four major actions that contribute over time to a relationship breakdown. Mm. Um, and I think those are stonewalling, uh, defensiveness, contempt and criticism. And that requires that people don't turn to those four pieces mm -hmm. if, you've, if you're able to externalize the problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which And each of those are actually part of the pursue withdrawal pattern that we're talking about. Yeah. So what does that, that part look like in a conflict? Well, I guess for the sake of kind of a clean illustration, um, it could look like one partner, so likely this is going to be the pursuer, um, engaging in criticism maybe as a way to get their partner's attention or connection. So they might say something like, you're so lazy. Uh, you know, you haven't done anything all day. I've been working my ass off. Like, what are you doing? Something like that. Um, and then the 
other partner, maybe the withdrawer, right, is going to go into perhaps a defensive stance, right? So then we see that second horseman come up, you know, well, I was working all day, you know, what are you expecting me to do? Like, I'm paying for this house. Uh, you know, how, how do you expect me to pay our bills? Um, and then the other partner could respond to that with contempt, uh, right? And so contempt would be something like rolling your eyes. Um, you know, contempt, like, sounds, it's like, oh, I would never treat my partner with contempt. But when you figure out what contempt is, right, it's like literally, you know, rolling your eyes or, you know, face palming, just like any sort of display that communicates, you know, superiority in some way or disgust with your partner. Um, so, so then, yeah, then that third horseman could come in and then the other partner Partner, you know, especially again, if they're a withdrawer, they might respond by stonewalling. So at that point, just completely cutting off emotionally and not engaging because it doesn't feel safe, right? Uh, so you know, that's like a, a really like kind of clean example of it in the sense that it's just like bam, bam, bam. But you can see right how they flow into one another. Um, so it would actually be quite easy. And I mean, I would say quite common um, based on, you know, some of the couples that I've, I've seen in practice and just, you know, even in my own life or friends that it, it, it's quite possible to have all four of those horsemen, you know, in one conflict at one time. Um, I think one of the people that people, that the things rather that people don't realize is, you know, how damaging these behaviors actually are to relationships. And that's the scary thing when you look at John Gottman, right? And his research, because he studied for, you know, 30 years in these love labs. And I think he claims to be able to predict with like, I, I think, I forget the exact percentage, but it was like 90% accuracy, something like that, right? Um, whether or not a couple will make it based on how many of these horsemen are present and um, and I guess the frequency in which you're using them. So John Gottman has a lot of really good resources that are available online for more information about this. So if anyone who's listening is interested in more, you know, if you just Googled him, um, there's a lot of videos and stuff that will explain more about what those four relationship uh, no-nos look like. A unique and, and probably heightened conflict that the pandemic has brought up for so many people is navigating the need for space and togetherness. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, this pandemic has definitely created uh, a challenging dynamic. Uh, I think, you know, so many people are spending the most amount of time that they have ever spent in their entire relationship with their partners right now, right? Like never before have people spent just a mass amount of quantity time together. Um, so what we're what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of you know close proximity to our partner, but not necessarily a lot of connectedness, right? And we have very little time or space for ourselves. And this can also, in addition, you know, to the stress that we've been talking about, um, it can also create a breeding ground for this conflict, right? Yeah. And without distraction, I guess everything is heightened, both the good things and then also the bad, mm. which also brings up, you know, managing schedules and intimacy. For many people, intimacy or friendship and sharing, um, not to mention sex, get lost in the tedium of being at home together all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and for some couples, you know, the 
first step might just even be acknowledging, uh, you know, that quality time, alone time and quantity time are different things, right? Like even just having that conversation, because I wonder if there can be just this expectation that, you know, because we're together all the time, things should be good. Uh, We should be happy. We should be feeling connected because we're seeing each other all the time. And yeah, like you said, that heightened sense of both the good and the bad that, you know, for some people, the sense of, you know, disconnect can feel so heightened because they're with their partner all the time. So, so that can feel so much more challenging and heavy. Um, and I guess while it, like, it might sound trite, I think it does come back to the reality of the importance of being intentional with our time, right? And this isn't just obviously important during the pandemic, but maybe extra important during the pandemic in terms of, you know, being intentional about scheduling time for these things, right? scheduling time for quality time together, remembering that just because you're sitting in the same room as each other all day doesn't mean you're actually connecting. And so while at the end of the day, the last thing you might want to do is spend more time with your partner, it's recognizing that there is a difference between quality and quantity time. So really making time throughout the week, it doesn't have to be maybe every day, um, but, you know, to, to really intentionally connect with one another, um, you know, trying as best as you can to schedule alone time, right? So maybe that looks like taking walks or, you know, intentionally being out of the house at different times so that, you can have that alone time. And yeah, even scheduling sex, right? Which I think people have often a bit of a reaction to, um, you know, that sex is supposed to be spontaneous. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, it was Esther Perel, I, who I heard speaking about this once, who was saying like, you would never expect dinner to just spontaneously make itself, right? Like you go, you go to the store and you have a plan and you get the ingredients that you need for that meal. Um, and in the same way, you know, the, there does need to be some element of planning, especially with busyness or, um, you know, even just not having a schedule or structure that can sometimes, you know, you think if we have all the time in the world, um, you know, we'll have time for this. But no, again, even if without that structure, it can actually make it harder, right? Because you're out of your routine. Yeah, prioritizing fun and good stuff is even more important as, as we navigate challenging circumstances. Yes. Chloe, it was such a pleasure talking mm-hmm. to you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. (laughs) Chloe is accepting new clients for her virtual practice, and you can reach out to her by visiting her website, chloechoi.ca. Yes, yes. I am practicing um, at this point. I'm not sure when this will air, um, but at this point in time, I am just practicing online. Um, But yes, people can feel free to reach out if they're interested, and I'll let them know what my status is. But I imagine, you know, online practice will become a part of our realities moving forwards. Yeah, whether it's 100% or 50%, it's going to be there, I think. If you like our show and want to know more, check out plumtherapy.com or join us next week when we're talking about parenting during a time of major upheaval. I'm Bryn Savage, and this is The Plum Line, a podcast on mental wellness.